Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, President, and Grant Ewing, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. Rockridge Resources is a new public mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada, specifically copper and battery metal projects. The company's flagship is the Knife Lake Project, located in Saskatchewan, which is ranked as one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Jordan, welcome to the program. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks for having me back. And Grant, welcome to the company and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Jordan, why didn't you give us an update? So we haven't spoken in a few months. A lot's happened since then. I believe the last interview we did was in the middle of our first inaugural drill program at our Knife Lake project, which has become the flagship project. It's a predominantly copper VMS project in Saskatchewan, just northwest of Flin Flon. So in one of the most prolific VMS greenstone belts in the world. When we spoke, we had just drilled what is the highlight of that drill program, the third hole which returned about 13 meters of just over five percent copper equivalent near surface so a very successful drill program we'll talk a little bit more about that but since that time we've announced additional results and we've brought in a new ceo grant ewing here and i'll let grant talk a little bit about his history in the industry but geologist by trade he's had success with previous companies including kiska and Arico and acadian mining so he knows a thing or two about building these junior mining companies and ultimately looking to to sell them or to be acquired by larger companies. And he's found several deposits during his time as well. So why don't I hand it over to Grant and you can elaborate on that. Grant, let me ask you straight off about your background. You must be an expert on copper, building companies such as this. What drew you to Rockridge? And of course, incorporate your background in that answer, if you don't mind. Yes, certainly. I've been with Rockridge now as CEO for just over two months. Quite excited to join. This company has a great management team prior to my joining, a well organized board of directors and a really high quality core asset in our Knife Lake project. My background, as Jordan mentioned, is as a geologist early in my career. The last 10 plus years, I've been involved in senior executive roles with a few different mining companies. Prior to this, I was with Kiska Metals from 2014 to 2017. At Kiska, we developed a successful royalty project generation business, and this led to the acquisition of Kiska by Arico Metals. I stayed on with Arico Metals as an executive and about nine months later, we sold the company to Centerigold. So a very nice double bump for Kiska shareholders during that time frame. Prior to that, I was with Acadian Mining, as Jordan mentioned. I was the CEO from 2010 to 2013. There we developed two gold projects in Nova Scotia through the resource evaluation definition phase and up to the preliminary economic stage. Acadian was then acquired due to this success by an international company. And shortly after that, Atlantic Gold acquired Acadian's assets mixed them with their own assets, and developed a highly successful open pit mining operation. And that company, Atlantic, just was purchased last month by a 
Australian company in a several hundred million dollar transaction. So I'm guessing perhaps there's a transaction in the future here, George, once the resource has been proved up? Ultimately, that's what you're hoping for. I mean, there's a lot of work yet to be done. We're in the business of exploration and making new discoveries. So, you know, just getting back to the flagship project, Knife Lake, we finished up the drill program there a few months ago, reported the results. Again, we had some pretty spectacular numbers near surface. Uh, What's interesting about this project, and again, Grant uh, being a, a geologist by trade, can elaborate on this, but you have a remobilized VMS deposit there. And so it's come from a primary source that has yet to be found. There's been a lot of drilling in and around the current deposit historical resource, uh, but not a lot of work regionally. And so that's what's also quite exciting for us going forward on this project in the upcoming summer program. We'll focus in on targets in and around the deposit and regionally, as well as targets at depth. We think there's a lot more mineralization and additional deposits to be found given it's a VMS system. You rarely ever find them in isolation and that it the fact that it's been remobilized it's come from a primary source so we think there's a lot more mineralization to be found the upcoming summer program that's exactly what it's geared towards and that'll lead to additional drill programs in the future at the project so there's no guarantee of course but you are looking for a mother load source of copper aren't you grant certainly that's the goal here the knife lake project as we know it today is a nice anchor for i, I think our company going forward we'll have an updated resource estimate for that project out within the in the next few days and then we'll embark on a summer program to prioritize many targets that we've identified from previous work on the land holding. The knife project itself was a fairly easy discovery because it occurs near surface. The prospectors back in the late 60s would have found that because of a copper showing on surface and all the attention was really focused on that deposit for the ensuing years. And now we've got the option to earn 100% interest in this project. And we'll really look at the exploration potential and look to make new discovery in the large land holding. Outside of Knife Lake... I understand the company has another project. Why don't you elaborate on that, Jordan? This is a newer company. Knife Lake is the flagship project, and we have a lot planned there over the coming years. But we also have a gold project in Ontario, just southwest of Timmins, called the Rainy Gold Project. And we have been seeing the price of gold moving up. The gold market is starting to heat up. It's a project that we've always had intentions of going back to and doing a little bit of work. Some previous drill results there. You've had six and a half grams of gold over eight meters near surface. So some good historical results. Not a lot of work that's been done really in the last decade. And an overarching theme and strategy of Rockridge is going into projects that have had a lot of historical work, but not necessarily a lot of recent work. Going in there with a new look at the exploration, using some new techniques, some new innovative exploration technologies and methods, and going in there and making new discoveries at a lower discovery cost. And that's what we're doing at Knife Lake. And that's what we could look to do at the Rainy Gold Project going forward. Grant, given your history with gold exploration, what are your thoughts with this particular project? This is a nice second asset to have in the company. The Rainy Project is a high-grade gold discovery. It's road accessible within easy driving distance of Timmins, Ontario. And this is a district in Canada where there's been many world-class gold discoveries. So we're excited to relook at the data and generate some good programs to get in and test the gold potential. Your thoughts on the copper market in general, really the price of copper is sort of irrelevant because the demand is there and the supply is not really meeting that demand. Jordan, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, when we acquired Knife Lake recently, the idea here was to position the company for what we believe will be a strong copper market in the mid to long run. Copper really is a common denominator in a lot of these newer 
macro trends, as I like to call them, millennial trends. You look at electric vehicles, clean energy. We need more copper. Generally speaking, the electrification that we're seeing happening globally, which again, basically encompasses all of these trends, there's one metal that we need more of and that's copper. So I think copper, especially copper deposits in good, safe mining jurisdictions like Saskatchewan and Manitoba are gonna become more and more important and we need to find more of it. There really hasn't been any major high grade copper discovery in the last, call it decade. So there's a lot of these big porphyry, lower grade bulk tonnage, copper, gold deposits, but we really haven't seen any big major high grade discovery. And so if you look at Flinflon and Grant, again, can talk a little bit more about this, but you know, Flinflon has a incredible mining history, a long history. Most of the deposits that have been found there do get developed into mines. There's good infrastructure. The exploration success that we'll have at Knife Lake going forward, I think you'll see that be very accretive for shareholders and the value creation that comes with it is an attractive proposition for any potential investor. Grant, your comments? Just to comment on the Flinflon Mining District, it is certainly a world-class metals district. Over the last 90 years, I think over 25 mines have been developed in the region. And the Knife Lake deposit is situated in the northwest extent of this really lucrative metals belt. You know, at Knife Lake Deposit, we look at the exploration history and, and very little work has been done to test the depth potential in the district. And in the Flinflon area, several of the mines occur at depth. So that leads us to believe that we've got excellent potential at the Knife Lake District for additional discovery. And Jordan, why don't you review the share structure for our audience, please? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the biggest talking points for the company. Just over 25 million shares issued and outstanding, a relatively tight float. Again, we IPO'd this relatively recently, did the deal to acquire Knife Lake just late last year. I think going forward, given the share structure, given the upcoming catalyst, given the projects in the company, there's a lot to look forward to. Well, Jordan Grant, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. We all look forward to new updates when they come across our desk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President, and Grant Ewing, CEO of Rockridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange. For more information on Rockridge Resources, go to the company's website, rockridgeresourcesltd.com. I'm Ellis Martin. If you're a principal in a publicly traded company seeking exposure to our listening audience, send us an email, martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation at the Sprott Resource Symposium in Vancouver, British Columbia, for a conversation with Trey Wasser, the president and CEO of Illegal Royalties, trading as ELY on the TSX Venture Exchange and ELYGF in the U.S. on the OTC. Illegal Royalties is a North American emerging royalty company with producing and development assets focused in Nevada and the western U.S. Its current portfolio includes a number of deeded royalties and option properties, which are currently generating revenue. All portfolio properties are sold or optioned on a 100% basis, while the company retains royalty interest. Its option properties will produce royalties if exercised. Illegal's royalty portfolio includes producing royalties, fully permitted mines, mines under construction, and development projects that are being permitted for mine construction. The company is well positioned with its current portfolio of over 20 available properties to generate additional operating revenue through option and sale transactions. 
with a proven track record of maximizing the value of its properties through claim consolidation and advancement using its extensive proprietary database. Trey, welcome to the program. It's nice to have you at the Sprott Symposium. Always great to be here. Love Vancouver this time of year. Tell us all about Ely Gold. Ely Gold is an emerging junior royalty company. We've been putting together a portfolio of royalty properties, primarily in Nevada. We've been working on it for the last two and a half, three years. We currently have 33 deeded royalties. We generate royalties by selling properties. We have 20 properties that are in the sale process. Those are generally under a four-year option. The option is exercise will also generate royalty. By now, we're using the cash flow from that portfolio to buy existing royalties, and we've been able to buy royalties on some very good projects. The Fenelon project of Wallbridge Mining in Quebec on the Jarrett Canyon mine that's operated in Elko County, Nevada, and we're continuing to grow the portfolio every day. As a royalty company, you're more or less a project generator, but you're keeping a piece of all the projects. Am I right? That is correct. And the piece we keep is the royalty. We do sell 100% of the project. Now, why specifically Nevada? Nevada has just been deemed the number one mining jurisdiction in the world by the Fraser Institute. It's accessible almost year-round, most of there. There's very little, if any, helicopter exploration in Nevada. And if Nevada were a country, it'd be the fourth largest gold producing country in the world. That's how much gold still comes out of Nevada. I didn't know that statistic, but it's certainly very, very believable. And it's a very business friendly, mining friendly state. And why be anywhere else? Well, that's true. And for our business model, Nevada is still open for staking. Many of the properties that we sell, we do not purchase, we stake. So we have very little cost in the properties. We have two people at our company, Jerry Bachman, who runs our royalty subsidiary and our Reno office, and Bill Sheriff, who has been around for many years, much of that in Nevada. Between the two of them, that's about 70, 75 years of experience prospecting in Nevada. Between them, we have a huge database of all the properties, and they know everybody who owns the properties, and we've just got a real leg up on being able to identify and acquire properties in Nevada at little or no cost, just the staking costs. Are you talking about the same Bill Sheriff with Golden Predator? That is one and the same. Bill is now one of our five board members at Ely Gold. So he's very, very active with Ely Gold. Yes, he is. He has input on the properties, identifying. We purchased his portfolio of Nevada properties in 2017. It included some royalties and quite a few properties that had sit for quite a while and needed our attention. The royalty business model is different from most mining companies in that, and I'm guessing, I don't know if this is entirely true with Ely, that you're not spending that much money, if any, on exploration and development. You are working merely on acquiring, as you said, staking properties and uplifting other royalties that become yours. So the cost of doing business is a lot less and very good in this sector, which has been down, but is now turning around. Well, that's absolutely right. We operate a portfolio of over 70 properties, 33 are royalties, 20 are in the process of being sold in our option portfolio. 20 properties approximately are available for sale and being developed where we're consolidating claims and the such. And we do all this with 
only two full-time employees, myself, who does all the contract and negotiations, and Jerry, who does the property work. And when you talk about royalty companies, if you go to our website, you can look at our presentation. I've got some great slides in there, graphs that show the comparison of royalty companies to gold equities and gold ETFs. Much better risk-reward with the gold royalties. Gold royalty companies have outperformed gold over the last 10 years, where the gold equity indexes, the GDX, GDXJ, have severely underperformed. And the top two gold royalty companies, Franco Nevada and Wheaton Precious Metals, over the last 10 years have outperformed the S&P. So that's something not many people know, but that shows that a gold royalty company belongs in your portfolio, regardless of your position on gold. And with gold heating up these days, it certainly should be in your portfolio. Let's talk about the management of the company. The management team will start with you. Of course, that's very important with regard to any company that's doing business. And I'm sure our listeners would like to know more about you. Well, I spent the bulk of my business career on the uh, investment banking side. Merrill Lynch, Kidder Peabody, Payne Weber, over about a 25-year span, doing mostly investment banking and municipal bond trading. I then spent about five, six years doing venture your capital work and then in retired for a while and got into the gold mining business 2006 2007 rest of the management Jerry Bachman I'd mentioned he's 35 years of experience in Nevada and the western United States prospecting and staking properties he built up a portfolio of royalties that was sold to Frontier those properties were held by Newmont and recently sold to a Cisco royalties so he's done this before and of course Bill Sheriff has had a lot of experience in Nevada as well as as other jurisdictions. Our corporate secretary and director that runs our Vancouver corporate office, Steve Kenwood, is also our qualified person, GO, that has a lot of experience here in BC, SK Creek, and a lot of time with BHP. Not a big team, but a lot of experience there, and we make a great team for making deals. And let's talk about the share structure, your market capitalization. What does that look like? Well, we're right, just under $100 million shares, 98 million in change, about 125 million fully diluted. The stock's been appreciating quite a bit. So we had the advantage when I came to the company in 2010, we had a project that we were developing at Mount Hamilton. We developed that with a partner and sold it in 2015 to Waterton Global. When we started the royalty business, we had a treasury of about $7 million. And that allowed us to start the property acquisition and royalty acquisition. The property sales, of course, have generated revenue for us, cover our overhead, and that portfolio is profitable. So we've really only done a couple of private placements here more recently to shore up the treasury and allow us to do some of the royalty purchases. The first of the year we did a deal with Sprott Global and Rick Rule took a 9.9% position in the company. And more recently in April, we did a private placement with Eric Sprott, and he took a 5.6% stake in the company. So we don't raise money a lot, but when the checks got Sprott on it, we tend to take it. So what can we see from the company during the next six months to 12 months? Well, we'll be doing more transactions and have great news flow, both on the option property sales side. We're working on a couple of new royalty acquisition transactions. We think we're at the hockey stick as they say in Canada here, point in the curve for our shareholders because traditionally royalty companies in their early years have a very 
very high beta and a lot of appreciation in a royalty company happens in the early years. So we're currently undervalued compared to our peers in the space and people are starting to look up and take notice of Ely Gold royalties. So we look for some stock appreciation in the near future. Well, I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Trey Wasser, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Trey Wasser, the president and CEO of Ely Gold Royalties, trading as ELY on the TSX Venture Exchange and ELYGF in the U.S. on the OTC. Go to the company's website, elygoldinc.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Christian Milau, the CEO of Equinox Gold, trading as EQX on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as EQXGF. Equinox Gold is a Canadian mining company with a multi-million ounce gold reserve base and a strong production growth profile from three wholly owned gold mines. The company is delivering on its growth strategy, advancing from a single asset developer to a gold producer in just two years, and is on track to have three mines in production by mid-2020. I spoke with Mr. Milau recently at the Sprout Resource Symposium in Vancouver, Canada. Christian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me back, Alex. Great to be here. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. Tell us all about Equinox. Equinox is a company that came together about 18 months ago through a three-way merger. Ross Beattie was behind one of the companies, Richard Wark behind the other, and myself and a management team behind the third. And basically, we created a company that has now three assets. It's got one in Brazil, which is a producing gold mine that just went into production a few weeks ago, actually. We also acquired an asset in California called Castle Mountain, which was a past producing mine about an hour from Las Vegas. Vegas, and we plan to put that back into production next year. And then we've also got a third mine, which is called Mesquite, which is in Southern California, which we acquired about nine months ago, which is a producing mine that Newgold owned until just the end of 2018. So we've now got three assets, five and a half million ounces in reserve and kind of an exciting growth future. Now, I live in California, in Southern California, and a lot of Canadians, many Canadians and investors and folks globally have looked at California as problematic with regard to jurisdiction, but you're going to tell me there's absolutely no issues in that arena, both with Mesquite and with the Castle Mountain Project. I'm not going to tell you there's no problems, man. There's problems everywhere when you're trying to permit and develop mines. You know, it's a challenge around the world these days. Our job now is to be minimizing our footprint, to be working with our social license intact with local communities and that, and California is no different. It has had a history, I think, of challenging mining and resource extraction, but you know, our two mines are right on sort of the Nevada and Arizona border. They're in areas that probably are higher unemployment, less wages in a sense and maybe more interested in development. Well, one of them's producing and one's past producing. So you're also got a brownfield footprint. It's not greenfield, which are harder, but British Columbia is a challenge. Uh, South America, Africa, I mean, there's lots of places that are challenges that just come in different nuances and putting these mines back into production or keeping them running. I think in California, we hope to be the largest gold miner in California soon. Well, it certainly sounds exciting. And I'm 100% behind exploration, development and production in California because in addition to Vancouver, it's the beginning of the gold rush back in the 1850s. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting for us driving around the countryside there as well. You do see these huge sort of fields of solar energy panels and that. And I mean, 
you hear various stories about how they impact birds and the heat they give off. And, you know, I like to think that we do our best because we are scrutinized in such a heavy way that we look to bring in any of these technologies as well to help us, but also to minimize their footprint. Last time we saw each other, I think it was about three or four years ago, you were with a company called Trek with a project in Brazil, and that is now owned by Equinox. That's correct. Probably about two and a half, three years ago, myself and four other management team members joined. It was Luna Gold at the time. And they only had a few million dollars in the bank and a dream of rebuilding the Arizona gold mine, again, a past producing mine. We literally achieved that on May 14th this year. We raised all the money, about $150 million over the last couple of years. Ross Beatty put in a lot of his own money, which was exciting. And we poured gold on May 14th and it's been ramping up since then. And we've had a good June and we're gonna have an even better July. And I can't wait to be able to announce some real results from that mine for a quarter, a full quarter. Last time I saw Ross Beatty was about two years ago, probably in Hong Kong. He was speaking on a panel at that time with Mines and Money. And he had mentioned Equinox and it's basically, it's not like he ever retired or came out of retirement more or less, but let's face it, Pan American Silver was, is his deal. And to start a new company like this and to have that kind of success, you don't do that with a management team that doesn't know anything and has never done it before. I like to think that's exactly right, but it's fantastic having both Ross and Richard behind us because they do have a name recognition and a track record of success. I'm probably 20 years younger than Ross, but hopefully I'm building that track record over time here. But he's put his own money in. He's brought a lot of investors and eyeballs and newsletter writers, etc., to the story, which has helped us and given us confidence because I tell you, access to capital in the last 18 months to two years has been terrible in our sector. Everyone's been buying cryptocurrencies and cannabis and that, but it's starting to turn now. I remember when we bought Mesquite last year. I remember gold price was 1160 or 1175. We're now at 14, I think 27 when I left my office today. So it's a real change. And, and Ross is a guy that invests in a very contrarian way to the market. So when people don't like something, he probably does like it in a sense. And he got into gold early thinking it was going to turn at some point. And I think we're a little ahead of schedule right now. I thought it would take a little longer. In that light, what can we expect from Equinox over the next six months? Yeah, the next six months, I think it's a little bit more of an inward looking deliver on what we said we'd do. So we said we'd buy Mesquite and integrate it, bring it into the portfolio. I'd say that's done. We said we'd restructure our balance sheet. That's done. Now we're going to show that Arizona's up and running well so we can get back to exploring our properties because we've really been focused on building the production base. And then the third thing is in probably quarter four, we'd like to announce we're in full construction at Castle Mountain. So rebuilding that mine in California the number two mine for us. So a busy period of time. We're well financed right now. And with the gold price where it is, I think cash flow is starting to come in. Tell us about the share structure. Yeah, we have about 550 million shares outstanding at the moment. And our share prices performed reasonably well for the last little period of time here. And one of the things we're seriously thinking about doing, because we're only TSX Venture Exchange listed, we really would like to get more exposure in the US. We have two California projects. We'd like to list at some point in New York. So we're looking at something like the New York Stock Exchange American and also graduating the TSX here in the next little while. Our volume has really picked up. I think our visibility in the U.S. is starting to pick up, and we really like to get listed in the U.S. at some point. Do you have an OTC symbol in the U.S. at all? We do. It's EQXFF. We do get a few days of some significant trading. I think one day in the last few weeks, we had $800,000 worth of trading. And that's a big number, considering our primary listings here in Canada, and, and we're not that well known in the U.S. at the moment. Well, Christian, it's a great pleasure to see you again. Congratulations on all your recent successes. I look forward to more. Thanks so much for joining me here at the Sprott Symposium. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it, Ellis. I've been speaking with Christian Milau, the CEO of Equinox Gold, trading as EQX on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as EQXGF. Find the company at equinoxgold.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Follow Ellis on Instagram at Elmo Joe Man. Again, find him on Instagram at Elmo Joe Man. 
I'm Ellis Martin. Rob McEwen is the chairman and chief owner of McEwen Mining. McEwen Mining trades on the New York Stock Exchange and the TSX is MUX. Mr. McEwen is the founder and former chairman and CEO of Gold Corp Inc., which is one of the largest gold producers in the world. In 1990, Rob jumped from the investment industry into the mining industry. By 1993, it began a consolidation of five companies that would take eight years to complete. The resulting company was Gold Corp, which has become a gold mining powerhouse. During the last 13 years of Rob being Gold Corp CEO, the company's market capitalization grew from $50 million to over $8 million, and its share price grew at a compound annual rate of 31%. Mr. McEwen joins us at the recent Sprott Natural Resource Symposium in Vancouver, British Columbia. Rob, welcome to the program. Nice to see you here in Vancouver. Wonderful to be here, Ellis. We had a recent reduction in the interest rate, quarter of a percent. We haven't had that in quite a long time. What do you think, let's prognosticate a little bit, realizing that you never know what's going to happen. What do you think that's going to do to the market that we feel is turning around with regard to precious metals? I think it's positive in the intermediate and longer term. Short-term reaction might be negative, but only in the short term. It's telling you that the government thinks the economy is slowing down and it needs further stimulation. So it's lowering interest rates. It'll probably look at trying to moderate their quantitative tightening that they were doing. So we'll get back into the easing phase. And this is going to be around the world. I mean, if America is cutting its interest rates, then Europe is probably going to cut its interest rates and all the trading partners. There's been this competitive currency devaluation to spur exports. So we're in this ridiculous world right now where there's over $11 trillion of government debt that has a negative interest rate. So basically, you're going to lend the government money and they're going to give you less back five or 10 years from now. And that's going to seem like a good deal. Is that an inflation driver? I mean, are we going to with quantitative easing coming again? And I don't think I've said that word, that phrase since 2012 or 2013. Does that mean that we're just going to be printing a lot more money and somehow that's going to drive inflation? And what does it really look like for gold? I mean, do we really know? If you look at history, when the government abuses currency by printing too much of it and drops interest rates to zero or negative, what you get is a misallocation of capital. And you're seeing it manifesting in stock market prices, growth stocks. Last year in the United States, 80% of the new issues, the IPOs, were for companies that weren't making money. The last time we saw a period like that was in 1999 when the dot-com bubble, when it was that high, where people are paying premiums for growth, not value. Are we going to see that specifically with the equities in the gold sector? Is Will there be IPOs in this realm where there's exploration companies potentially and there's nothing going on but the stock's going to do something just because we may have another run in the gold market? Oh, we are. I mean, the exploration stories, I could count on my hand, both hands, six, seven, eight, nine companies that have done in the last year or up a couple of hundred percent to over 500 percent. A little company called Great Bear that I had an investment in, still do. But it ran from 50 cents last August to $5 today. But it's got the goods, Rob. It's got great. It has a discovery and it has some great. But what happened is we had all this selling in the last 77 years. The bear market we were in was the deepest and the longest of the last 77 years. So there were all sorts of people that were just spitting out their stocks. All the selling's over. There was no liquidity. No one was paying any attention. But these drill results were coming out and they were looking interesting. And people started buying and there wasn't stock available. The sellers had all gone. And now you had to 
bid up the stock to get anything. And that's what we're seeing. And it becomes quite exciting then. Do you mind me asking how that transaction started? Did they seek you out? Were they on your radar? Tell us about how you got involved with Great Bear. I think it was $7 million. We have our door open. So we say, anybody can walk in the door, pitch their story. Almost not everybody, but generally most people can come in. And you listen to the story. They came in, presented, and I went, okay, it's in Red Lake. I know Red Lake from my Gold Corp days. They're getting grades that look a little comparable to what I saw at our Red Lake mine. Their share cap was low, and it seemed ignored. I mean, it had moved up. I paid a little more than I thought I was going to pay for it. But no, it just had elements that I thought would make it fly. I know this is maybe a a conundrum type of question, but what is the difference between what Rob McEwen does and what McEwen Mining does? Well, it starts off, my bank account's bigger than the company's bank account. So I am going out and I think this market's moving, so I don't want to miss out on it. Over the course of years, I buy anywhere from 10 to 30% of juniors when they were distressed. And I would take large positions, betting that they were moving higher. Have you been doing that your entire professional life in the sector? I won't say all the time. When I was running Gold Corp, I maintained a portfolio of juniors, and I viewed it as a farm team, a listening post for what was going on in the industry, and possibly M&A targets, but I guess it's fortunate. Most of them went to higher levels, and I was prepared to issue paper out of Gold Corp, so I sold them. So we didn't have to go to the market as much to raise money because we were making money trading gold stocks, and that negated the need to do financings. Can I ask you about the recent Gold Corp Newmont merger? Do you have anything to say about that at all? I think it's a shame for Canada. It would have been nice for Gold Corp to remain Canadian and maybe have bought Newmont rather than being bought by Newmont. I think Canada is being hollowed out, corporate offices, and when you lose corporate offices, you lose the corporate heart that funds a lot of the benefits for society. The mining industry is very generous, and there are people in it that have done very big things for healthcare, education, the arts. And I'm thinking of Seymour Schulich's given away more than $350 million, and he was Franco Nevada. Peter Monk of Barrick's given away more than $300 million. Political science studies, debates about controversial topics, again, education, healthcare, all areas that we need a lot of investment in. My wife and I have given away $70 million to various causes, and I look at Peter and Seymour and use them as models and say, I'd like to emulate that and someday get to those levels. And there are many other people in the industry here. They're in Vancouver, Norm Keevil or Ross Beattie or Ian Telfer. The list goes on and on. Stu Blossom. They're all people that have said, I want a better society. And uh, mining allowed me to do that. We should really be encouraging mining. I mean, if you look at mining, the Royal Bank did a study of pay scales and mining paid twice the rate that the average Canadian receives in pay. And so why isn't Ottawa, why isn't Victoria, why isn't Toronto saying, we've got to support this. These are long lasting projects that pay large salaries that make contributions to society. This is a mining country, Canada. So is Australia for that matter. Why is there such a huge disconnect between the industry that sustains this country, that sustains this country, that keeps the Canadian dollar strong, which it's not right now, and the government? Why does that disconnect exist? It's an excellent question, Alice. I'm not certain of the answer, but I think one contributor might be that the people who are running the country are come from large urban centers, very far removed from any 
any mining activity. They might not even venture into the areas where a lot of the mining goes on. They, they go to popular destinations outside the country. But they should appreciate the contribution to export earnings and tax base. I mean, it's like oil. I remember having a lunch where I spoke with Christy Clark, the former premier of BC, and she said, you know, what Canadians really have to realize is we either sell our oil and we have health care, or we don't sell our oil and we don't have health care. There's enough minerals and resources in the ground to really sustain the world, aren't there? There are, and they keep being found. I mean, a lot of people say all of them are discovered. I left the investment industry after being in it for 18 years, thinking I'd see what I could do in the mining industry, because I'd met a number of, I'll call them promoters, that had been able to identify projects and they made multiple fortunes. They made a fortune, lost it, made it, lost it. But they did this repeatedly. And I said, well, if they're doing that, there's still more discoveries to be made. And they may not be on surface, but they might be a little deeper. It might be different technology. It might be other ways of getting it out. But there's much more to be found, and we should be going after that. Maybe one day nanotechnology comes along and is able to replicate the atomic table. And you'll be able to make the metals or materials that have similar properties to metals in a factory. And what do we do with what we could have taken out of the ground? And would we be at the leading edge of that or would that be some technology center far removed from Canada and what happens to our lifestyle? It's some sort of industrial alchemy that you're uh, describing here, isn't it? Exactly. How does everything that we've discussed up until this point, including your personal philosophy and your charitable endeavors, how does that play into McEwen Mining now? Well, I look at McEwen Mining. I own 22% of the company, and I'm looking at the profits that I make there. A large part of that will be going into supporting research in healthcare, in education, in leadership. To me, those are very worthy investments to make. We had a tough first and second quarter and I'd say we were put in the doghouse because of some operational issues. And we've got on top of those and turned the corner. And we're seeing the next part of the year and beyond improving. So how does it help us? I think it focuses you on what you want to do. I mean, mining is a good endeavor. It can create enormous amounts of wealth for a large number of people, can benefit the country, and that's where I want to put my energy. What are you most excited about now with regard to all of your projects around the world? What is keeping you busy? Lots of keeping me busy. Some of the challenges in the first and second quarter kept me busy, but we have a large copper deposit in Argentina. It's about 30 billion pounds of copper. It's a mega project. When you look at it, it has a very robust PEA, so it's expensive to build. It's about 2.4 billion, but at $3 copper, it would pay back in under four years. It would be in the bottom of the cost curve. It'd be in the lowest quartile of the cost curve for the industry if it was built today. That money would be paid back in four years and it would run for 36 years. So we're looking to see if we can get a joint venture partner for that, put some money up front and then build it and we have a continued interest. So that's one. Last year we spent 19 million on exploration. This year in Nevada and Ontario, this year we're spending 17 million dollars. We're getting some very good grades in Timmins and we are testing in Nevada for um, something that looks like a Barrick, Cortez Hills, Gold Rush and Four Mile Discovery, which are some of their biggest discoveries in the last decade. And it's 25 miles up the road from our Gold Bar property that we just brought into production. So we're expanding our surface oxides through drilling, but we're also going to test 
to see if one of those big, sweet, rich ore bodies sits below. I'm going to ask a question that a journalist would answer and not an expert necessarily in mining. With Nevada being such a mining state for so many decades, a couple of centuries perhaps, how are the new discoveries being found? Why is it still very, very exciting there in Nevada? Nevada's fairly young geologically for the gold deposits. There's some very large deposits. They're going deeper. There was a study we looked at. It was done by one of Barrick's senior geos, Francois Robert, and he looked at 468 gold deposits around the world that were greater than 3 million ounces, and he was looking to see what was the chance of those deposits growing to over 10 million ounces. And in Nevada, where you have Carlin-style deposits, of the 468, he found about 20 of those deposits that grew from 3 to greater than 10 million ounces, and 45% of those deposits grew in that size. It's not quite a probability, but there's a very high chance if you could get over 3 million, you get to 10. And so you start with a shallow surface mine, and then you start drilling deeper, and you're getting into some of these very big systems. Let's make the assumption or presumption that there are a lot of new people listening to this particular segment that have had no experience in the mining sector. We know we're also talking to people that are very experienced in the mining sector and have been through many ups and many downs, but let's talk to the new folks. Why consider investing in gold, copper, in silver, and why consider investing in a company such as McEwen Mining, which is not a new company, not a small company? Well, you first look at stock markets. They're cycles. And in the late portion of every cycle, you have the base metals and the precious metals moving. So we are late cycle right now. We've had one of the longest bull markets in recent history. So we're late cycle. Second, gold has been pushed to the floor and gold stocks even further, they've been pushed under the floor. They've been heavily oversold, they've been totally neglected, and I think there's a far better chance of gold doubling from where it is today, as opposed to the Dow going from 27,000 to 54,000. So the Dow is run and it's at its peak, maybe not its all-time peak, but it's very high, and gold and precious metals and base metals are fairly depressed levels relative to their old highs. So be a contrarian, take a look at that. Now in terms of what you want to buy, it's going to depend on your risk profile. If you're a conservative investor who just wants exposure to gold, but doesn't want a lot of risk, maybe wants an income stream, they should probably buy a royalty or a streaming company, or maybe a senior one. If they're looking for more growth, but more risk, they'll have to incur they go for an intermediate and the risk gets higher as you go to the junior producer and then into the exploration area. I happen to like that part of the market because there's the biggest upside potential. You have to recognize it comes with the greatest risk. If you look at our company, McEwen Mining, it has a high beta, which means when gold moves, it probably has a better move than gold. But when it moves up, it also, when it moves down, it goes further than a lot of others. So. I would say that our stock, you can't be risk adverse and think about buying our stock because of the volatility in it. But if you do possess a positive view of the price of gold and you want to magnify the move of the price of gold, then you should look at our company. Good trading liquidity, 90% of our trade is on our New York listing, the balance on Toronto. Our balance sheet has sufficient liquidity to cover off our development projects right now. As I said, I'm a large owner of the company who takes a dollar salary a year and 
We're diversified. We're on two continents. We're in four countries. We produce 80% of our revenue is gold, 20% is silver, and we have this huge optionality to copper through our Los Azulas property. Rob, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program here in Vancouver. Thank you very much, Alice. Pleasure. I've been speaking with Ron McEwen of McEwen Mining, trading as MUX on the New York Stock Exchange and on the TSX. I'm Ellis Martin. Follow Ellis on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Paul Cronin, Executive Director of Adriatic Metals, trading on the ASX as ADT and in the U.S. as ADMLF. Adriatic Metals is an ASX-listed zinc polymetallic explorer and developer via its 100% interest in the Varus project in Bosnia and Herzegovina. The project comprises a historic open-cut zinc-lead barite and silver mine, an advanced proximal deposit which exhibits exceptionally high grades of base and precious metals. Mr. Cronin joins me at the recent Sprott Natural Resource Symposium in Vancouver, Canada. Paul, welcome back to the program. Nice to see you today here in Vancouver at the Sprott Symposium. Thanks very much, Ellis. Nice to be here. Now, I don't believe we've covered Adriatic on our program at all, so let's introduce you to our massive global audience. Tell us all about Adriatic Metals. Okay, pretty easy. Adriatic Metals was incorporated in the UK in early 2017, specifically to buy a mining concession in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Why specifically that area? It was The opportunity was the project itself. We recognised that there was a historic mining operation there where there had been substantial exploration conducted before the Bosnian War, but all of that work and the mine was shut down during the war. We saw an opportunity to pick that up and move it forward. How is the infrastructure in Eastern Europe? Because I've not been there, I have to be honest with you, and we just don't know a lot of us. Well, it's a bit like LA, except not as much traffic. There's great roads, there's rail, there's power, there's water. You've got everything you need. You've got high-speed internet. Eastern Europe's a fantastic jurisdiction. It just doesn't have the population of Western Europe or the United States. So that makes it, I assume, a lot easier to get things done and you've got a hard-working workforce. Absolutely. We've got a well-trained workforce, people who've got multiple degrees, sometimes PhDs. They just haven't been presented with the opportunities to work in their own country. Quite often, a lot of the Bosnian sort of cream of the crop of, of people will end up in the US or in Canada or Australia or, or other parts of Western Europe. I think this is the first opportunity where we've seen a lot of Bosnians who contacted us from other countries So, you know, I'd like to come back and work with you guys. It's a very close culture globally, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, the mining industry brings people together from all over the world. So tell us about the project. So the project is basically an old open pit called Via Vacham, which we started doing confirmation drilling on because we didn't have any old core to rely on. So we started doing confirmation drilling on that immediately after our acquisition in March 2017 and we confirmed a resource on there we've just put a resource on there at the moment of 7.3 million tons grading around 4% zinc equivalent the interesting part of the project however was another field called Rupetsa now that was where when we looked at buying the project we looked at a lot of the sections and drill hole logs and said to the chief geologist of the mining department in Sarajevo why didn't you keep drilling this and he said because the war broke out and everybody had to flee so we went up there in June, July 2017. I stuck my first hole in there and I hit an absolute barnstormer. 62 metres, 33% zinc. It'd be one of the highest grade holes I've ever seen in my career. I then decided to keep drilling up there using my own money, a limited amount of money. I drilled another seven holes up there and of the eight holes I drilled, six of them hit high grade thick mineralisation. That was when I knew that we were onto something quite special. We needed to list the company, we needed to raise money and get on with it. So we did that in April 2017 
2018, we listed on the ASX, we raised 10 million Australian dollars and we set about doing more drilling on site. In the winter months prior to the listing, we did a lot of surface works, we did soil geochemistry, we did a lot of IP geophysics to look for potential targets to drill. And then when we got back in there in May 2018, our first drill hole was 62 metres at 37% sink. And after that, we drilled drill hole after drill hole, the best one being 72 metres at 44% sink. So we've had a lot of exploration success. We listed on the ASX at 20 cents in May 2018. We were the best performing IPO on the ASX in 2018. Our share price is now well over a dollar and we're continuing to drill and expand our project. We've put out our maiden resource on Ripertzer of 9.4 million tonnes at just under 17% zinc equivalent. This makes it one of the highest grade and largest polymetallic zinc projects in the world. In the world, which is perhaps why Sprott got involved in a zinc market that's maybe been a little flat, right? Well, possibly, but anecdotally, you know, I hear that Sprott have bought about 7% of the company on market. That's a huge on-market purchase to do over a year. But the beauty of Adriatic and the beauty of the Varus project is it's not all zinc. It's zinc, it's lead, it's gold, it's silver, it's copper, it's barite. And barite, I think, is going to be very important in terms of the way we develop the project because the need for barite in the US in particular. You know, China is the biggest producer of barite in the world. It's needed for oil and gas exploration. The US doesn't produce anywhere near what it consumes. And so we know that there's a really big market for barite here in North America. We also know there's a big market for barite in the Middle East and in Northern Europe, and we've got tons of it. Is it too early to have these off-take conversations with various folks around the world? We haven't had off-take conversations, but we have engaged a marketing consultant to look at what are going to be the best concentrate products for sale and where we're going to get maximum payability for those and what they should look like. So we've conducted all of our metallurgical test work almost in reverse by looking at what the market wants and then trying to create those products. We made a lot of progress there. We're getting pretty close, and that'll come out in our scoping study in October. You can expect that scoping study to show some pretty impressive numbers. I find that the Australians being in America and the Australians and the Canadians are the most aggressive in the mining sector throughout the world. You'll spot a good project, you'll find it. If it makes sense, you'll get involved, you'll get money into it. You have a lot of experience in, in Europe. You're based in London, correct? Just to take this particular opportunity, how easy was it? Look, I think going into a new jurisdiction that doesn't really have an established base metals mining sector was always an area of concern. We partnered up with a good local lawyer who knew what he was doing. We built a good team of Bosnians on the ground. We engaged with government early. We engaged with the British Embassy early to take their advice. And over the last couple of years, we've built ourselves up a pretty good network uh, of people. I think in our local town, people know who we are. They know who our staff are. We're the second biggest employer in our local community now. We sponsor our local football team. We sponsor art festivals. We even sponsored a Monica festival last weekend. None of the big money, but it's all about building goodwill and letting people know that you're a good corporate citizen. You know, the success that we've had in permitting the project today, I think, is indicative of the way we've engaged with our local community. We take our ESG obligations very seriously and we build an entire framework on the way we engage with our community, we engage with our government and how we manage the environmental impacts of our projects. And I think the way that we've done that has served us well. What can we see during the next year for current shareholders and possible new shareholders for the company? Look, next year is going to be huge. At the moment, I've got five drill rigs turning. I'm drilling through mineralisation on the west. I'm drilling through mineralisation on the north and on the south. I'm about to start our new area of exploration at Jurassic Brestic. We've identified a whole new chargeability anomaly to the west of the deposit. We've got a drill rig in there right now, drilling that. We'll start to see what that turns out by the end of the week. We've put out our maiden resource, and so now 
now it's time to put the economics on that. So we'll put a scoping study out in October with all the metallurgical work, with the geotechnical, hydrogeological, and then we're going to make an application to go in, into exploitation. We expect to make that application in late September, early October. Indicatively, we're hoping to get that permit in the bag by the end of the year, and we're going to crack on with feasibility. So we're going to push this project forward very, very, very quickly. That sounds like a very aggressive plan. You're not waiting for anything, are you? Absolutely not. Paul, tell us about your relationship with Sandfire Resources. Uh, look, I think the market knows Sandfire came in uh, and took a 7.5% stake in the company on IPO. We haven't had a lot to do with Sandfire in the intervening period, but a few weeks ago, you may have seen they increased their stake to just under 11.5%. You know, Sandfire are a big company. They've been very aggressive in their acquisitions uh, over the last couple of years. We'll continue to work with Sandfire as a, as a major shareholder. You know, we're happy to take the project alone. Paul, tell us about the share structure of the company, if you don't mind. Yeah, so management and boards still own over 30% of the shares. Yeah, we've got a, a lot of skin in the game. And I think as a management team and a board, we can see where the value of this company can go over the next few years. We do have a significant interest in the company. We're determined to continue to add value to shareholders, both large and small, over the next two years by just taking those projects through its milestones. So we can expect some significant news flow over the next year as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'll continue to see exploration results, but drilling, geophysical results. We're going to be doing some more geochemistry, plus the sort of major milestone of the scoping study and the exploitation permit. Well, Paul, it's always good to see you in person. We've spoken on the phone and Skype before. Thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck to you and your company. Thanks, Ellis. Appreciate it. I've been chatting with Paul Cronin, Executive Director of Adriatic Metals, trading on the ASX's ADT and the U.S. as ADMLF. Go to their website. AdrianicMetals.com. Thoughts, comments, criticisms, accolades, praise, admonishments, pats on the back, all welcomed. Email us at martinreports at gmail.com and tell us how you really feel. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the president and chief executive officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S., Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Tell us all about Sky Harbor. Sky Harbor is a high-grade uranium exploration and early-stage development company with projects located in the Athabasca Basin. It's the highest-grade depository of uranium in the world in the number three mining jurisdiction in the world as ranked by the Fraser Institute. So we've accumulated a portfolio of properties scattered throughout the Athabasca Basin, totaling six projects, uh, almost half a million acres of ground. Two of the projects have deposits our flagship project being the Moore project is where we've been the most active over the last several years, carrying out several drill programs intersecting high-grade uranium mineralization, which I'll talk a little bit more about. But it's important to note with Sky Harbor that we have a dual-pronged strategy. One is high-grade 
discovery and exploration and drilling at our flagship project. And then second, we act as a prospect generator. So a big portfolio, we look to bring in partner companies that can fund the exploration and advance these projects while we focus our efforts on our flagship project. We have two important partnerships, one with Denison Mines, our largest strategic shareholder, the president and CEO, Dave Cates, is on our board. And then secondly, with a big company out of France called Arano, it's France's largest uranium mining company based in Paris. And we have a partnership at the project level with them at our Preston project. They're spending $8 million over a six-year period to earn up to 70% of that property. And that's, again, a part of our prospect generator business that we run. So a dual-pronged strategy, a great team with focused expertise on exploration, uranium exploration in the Athabasca Basin, and a very strong shareholder base. I understand that the grades in the Athabasca can be as much as 10 times what they are most places in the world. Yeah, it really is the Saudi Arabia, if you will, of the uranium mining industry. It's the best jurisdiction to look for uranium, to develop mines, and to produce. The richest, highest grade deposits in the world are located in the Athabasca Basin. I think that's an important talking point. If you look at what we're doing at Sky Harbor, again, we're trying to emulate the success that other discovery stories have recently had, like NextGen, like Fission, like Hathor, which was acquired by Rio Tinto. These companies have had success and have created a lot of shareholder value on the back of high-grade uranium discoveries in the Athabasca Basin. You really can't find this kind of grade anywhere else. So when you go and you find these deposits in this high-grade mineralization, you're rewarded for it in the marketplace, even in a difficult uranium market. It's been a tough commodity. The price has been quite volatile. I think we've seen a bottom put in place in late 2016. We've been seeing it consolidate here in the low to mid-20s, but there's very strong fundamentals backing the commodity right now. And I think over the next little while, you're going to see a significant price increase in the commodity. Tell us about your recently completed drill program. We've had a lot of success in the last few drill programs. We've been intersecting and discovering new high-grade uranium mineralization. But what's exciting about this recent program is we're finding high-grade mineralization in a new geological setting in the basement rock. So it's important to note A lot of the previous drilling on this project, a lot of the uranium that's been found, the high-grade mineralization is at the unconformity or in the sandstone. So we're now looking and drilling a little bit deeper into the basement rock. And this is the same geological setting that NextGen and that Fission and other recent successes have found their high-grade uranium in the feeder zones, the structures, the underlying structures that bring the uranium up are in the basement rocks. And so we finally now intersected high-grade uranium in these feeder zones, in these structures. We are currently flying a UAV, a drone survey, geophysical survey, to further refine the targets, drill targets in the basement rock. And this has led in this previous program to us finding this high-grade mineralization. It's an innovative way, much cheaper way to find these targets. So we're using these new techniques. We're having success with it, and we're going to continue to do that. So the current drone survey that we're flying will have uh, the results back, interpretation back on here shortly, and that'll segue into an upcoming drill program. And again, looking to find more high-grade mineralization in the underlying basement rock. But it's not just about the basement rock. As I said, most of the historical mineralization has been found at the unconformity in the sandstone and it's a four kilometer long corridor really only two kilometers of it the maverick corridor as we call it has been systematically drill tested so there's a lot of room along strike and at depth in the underlying basement rocks how does the macro market with regard to uranium and energy and geopolitics and everything that people talk about with regard to 
the sector. How does that affect your day-to-day, your business plan, and your market? Yeah, it's a great question. Needless to say, running a uranium company, I find I spend a lot of time talking about the uranium market um, versus, you know, very specifically what we're doing on the projects. But it's, it's important, right? I mean, that's what people are looking at. And generally speaking, when people are investing in the space, there's only a handful of uranium companies left. I think it's important to note that the total combined market capitalization of all publicly traded uranium companies is around $10 billion. So it's a it's a small niche sector. Investors that want exposure to the commodity really only have the option of buying the uranium mining companies, which is in a good market is going to benefit us, right? Because the money coming in is basically just going to be focused on a few companies that are still around. So we're one of those companies. The uranium market, as I mentioned earlier, has been volatile. Post Fukushima, we all know what happened. The market really was decimated. We saw the spot price drop from $70 a pound. I got down to a a low in late 2016 of just under $18 a pound, which is near the all-time low in inflation adjustment terms. Now we have started to see the early days of a recovery. I think that was the bottom put in place, but it has been volatile. The bottom line is right now, most production globally can't make money. It's simply not profitable. So we've seen major supply curtailment. We've seen the largest mine at MacArthur River, the richest uranium deposit in the world, owned and operated by Cameco, shut down. That's about 12% of global supply that's been cut off. We've seen other producers make major supply cuts and we've seen project deferrals. We haven't seen really much of any new production come online. And there's a lot of projects that simply won't be built until we see a much higher uranium price. So the supply side has responded to the low price environment. But I think it's also important to highlight that the demand side, nuclear reactors, that's the uranium's the fuel for nuclear reactors, that's continuing to grow. We may not see it here in the Western world, but in the Eastern world and in the developing world, Air quality is a huge problem. So we need clean baseload electricity. That's what nuclear provides. It's a good complement to renewables. We don't need the wind blowing, don't need the sun shining. So the demand side has continued to grow. The supply side's responded to give you an idea where the demand side's gonna be about over 190 million pounds of demand in 2019. Yet the primary mine supply, we're now less than 140 million pounds being produced from the current mines. So there's a big supply deficit looming. More recently, and I think this is quite topical right now because this has had an impact on the market, the Section 232 investigation and decision in the U.S. really has captured the headlines over the last year, year and a half. So there was an investigation that was ongoing up until recently when a decision came out that looked into where the U.S., keeping in mind the U.S. has the largest nuclear fleet in the world, largest consumer of uranium, where the U.S. was having to import and get its uranium from. A lot of people don't know this. One in five homes powered by nuclear in the United States. And the U.S. has to import now over 99% of its uranium. And a big chunk of that comes from Kazakhstan, Russia, and Uzbekistan. These countries, as the investigation looked into, they deemed to be that production, low-cost, subsidized, state-subsidized production. And so it's basically strangled the uranium mining industry in the U.S. There was a couple of U.S. uranium mining companies that petitioned and lobbied the Department of Commerce and the administration to rectify this. And what they were looking at doing was putting a 25% quota on uranium that was being bought or being used by U.S. nuclear utilities. So U.S. nuclear utilities would have to source 25% of their annual requirements from domestic sources. Now, it just came out a few weeks ago 
The administration has ruled against that. So there is no quota, there's no trade tariffs, and this is actually a positive ruling for non-US uranium companies, Canadian companies, Australian companies, and the like, because it would have meant that 10 to 12 million pounds of subsidized uranium production in the US would have come online over the next five to six years. It's gonna be a positive development in the long run. Even more importantly than that, because this section 232 basically hogtied these US nuclear utilities, they were not contracting, they were not doing any purchasing over the last year, year and a half. It now clears the air. It now allows them to come back to the market. There is this 90 day working group, but I think given that the quota was not put in place, I think now these nuclear utilities utilities in the US, which account for about a third of annual uranium demand, can come back with some clarity and can start contracting. And that's really what's going to be the biggest catalyst going forward is utility contracting ramping back up. So it's important, I think, to note that you know, there was a bit of this throw the baby out with the bathwater because of the Section 232 ruling, but it's going to be positive in the long run for the space. So there's a variety of factors that could drive the price of uranium up, correct? Yeah, there are. And as I said, new utility contracting now that Section 232 is behind us. There's several producers that have been buying in the spot market because they've shut down production, the big one being Cameco. Cameco shutting down MacArthur has to buy a lot of supply in the spot market. They haven't been buying as much since the beginning of the year. We'll see that ramp up over the coming months. That was positive for the spot price this time last year and will continue to be positive for the spot price going forward. And then again, you just get back to the supply demand fundamentals. We've seen supply go offline. We're not seeing any new major mines coming online anytime soon. Certainly not at these prices. On the demand side, we are seeing demand continuing to grow, especially in the developing world world in China, in India, and other parts of the world where air quality is a big problem. Nuclear is the solution to that. Well, let's talk about the share structure of the company. Yeah, so there's about 65 million shares issued in outstanding. A couple of notable shareholders, as I mentioned earlier, Denison Mines is our largest strategic shareholder with just under 10%. Marin Katuza and the KCR Fund have been big backers and supporters really from day one. We have a couple of other funds that have come in in the last couple of years. Uh, the largest bank in Hungary called OTP. They have a resource fund. They're a large shareholder. Sachem Cove out of New York, Extract as well. So there's been some institutional interest in the last several years, which I think is important. Sophisticated money coming into the space that's betting on not just what we're doing in the field, again, going out there drilling, looking for that next big high-grade discovery, also prospect generation, but also on the uranium price rising over the coming years. Jordan, it's always a pleasure to see you and speak with you about this company. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thank you. I've been speaking. Speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Rick Rule, the President and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Mr. Rule is one of the keynote speakers and panelists at the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. Rick, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting us out again this year. Always a pleasure, Ellis, and thank you for coming. I'm feeling sort of an excitement from the companies, from people in the business, from people behind the companies, from shareholders about some excitement about the sector, the kind of which I haven't seen since 2011. Would you not agree? I think there is 
excitement in the sector. My preference would be that this resembled 2000 more than 2011, both because the 2000 bull market had a different genesis and also, of course, because it was longer lasting. Let's talk about that. As my memory serves me correctly, it was a great market that got stamped on a little bit at the end of 2001 when we had that unfortunate attack on the World Trade Center. So uh, let's discuss that for a minute and then move on to today. Well, my hope is that the parallels between the two are fairly similar in the sense that the uh, 2000 market recovery occurred after a long and vicious bear market, a bear market where the Toronto Stock Exchange Resource Index fell by 68 or 69 percent. In this circumstance, where we are today, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Resource Index has fallen by 85 percent. And if you follow natural resource-based businesses, you know that they are the most cyclical businesses on the planet. That means that bear markets of the type that we've been through and the type that we were, went through in the late 1990s are the very authors of bull markets. It is a bear market that causes a bull market and a bull market that in turn causes a bear market. The circumstance that we've been through where the stock index is off in nominal terms by 85% signifies, I think, the return of a real strong and dramatic bull market. The excitement that you see right now is the fact that we're up off the bottom, that there's some life returning to the sector. What makes me particularly attracted to it is that despite the fact that we've had 20 and 30 and 40 percent move in selected gold stocks, the future is much more dramatic than the immediate past. That's the lesson that history teaches us when the bull market has its genesis in a long and ugly bear market. It was as ugly as it could get, wasn't it? I, uh, uh, in my life have not seen a bear market like this since the bear market that we experienced in the early part of the decade of the 80s, which makes a different point. That great bull market that we had in the 1970s was the author of the bear market that followed it in the 1980s. The bear market in the 1980s didn't have an index to be able to quantify how ugly it was, but it was certainly one for the record books, as this one was as well. I wanted to ask you this question when we were off mic about two hours ago. I'll ask it now in front of our audience. Do you think there's going to be any specific additional drivers, any parabolic drivers, for instance, price of oil? That certainly is coupled with gold when there's dramatic geopolitical news. I'm delighted that you asked me this. This is a speculative interview, so I get to give a speculative answer. What will surprise people in this bull market will be, when they come in, the participations of the millennials. Right now, the millennials can't spell gold. They pay attention to things that I, in turn, can't spell. But my experience with the millennials is that they are, first of all, the most narrative-driven generation that we've ever seen. And as a consequence of the multiplicity of sources of information that they get, the quickest adapters that we have ever seen. They don't care about gold at all or resources, but gold and resources are one of the most pervasive and persuasive narratives that have ever existed. The millennials thus far have been attracted to investments that feature momentum if you will, the equilibrium between greed and fear, they have leaned all towards greed. When you look at a gold market which ricochets between fear, the first motivator for gold, and greed, what you see is a narrative unlike any narrative that we've ever seen. In prior bull markets, in resources, you've seen the commodity move first, the senior producers move second, the mid-tier producers move third, the junior producers, and then the explorers. And these moves have taken place over 
over three or four years. What will change with the millennials is that they will go through this market much, much, much more quickly as a consequence of crowdsourced information. And you will see the narrative spread to the most speculative stocks much more pervasively and much quicker than would have been the case when our generation moves stocks. I have no reason to disbelieve you whatsoever. In fact, I think you're absolutely right. At that point, are we going to see another price of gold that's going to be maybe $2,500, $4,000 an ounce that looks believable and sustainable, that's not parabolic, but how the market should be? I'm no millennial. I'm an old guy. I'm not going to give you price-specific. I'll tell you this. All markets are cyclical. And when we get to the point where your job, popularizing gold stocks, is easy, the game will be over. When you see gold on the cover of Barron's Magazine and Bloomberg Business Week, the time will have come to look at some other way to make a living. Then I'm out of a job is what you're saying. Well, or else you can find something else that's unpopular and popularize it. The truth is that these businesses are extraordinarily cyclical. And when you become popular, you have to become cautious. That's some time off. Don't despair, Ellis. I am despaired a little bit. Are we going to see those millennials, in your opinion, at these conferences? I don't see any today. Maybe they'll show up during the next couple of days, but uh, what are your thoughts? I absolutely think you're going to see them at these conferences. One of the things that we've noticed, because we talk to a lot of people, we get between 30 and 50 inbound inquiries a day in my office from prospective investors. For the first time in 10 years, the majority of those investors are under 40. And for the first time in my career, 40% of the inbound inquiries are coming from females. The truth is that the gold audience through most of my life has looked like me, old, fat, bald, white guys. The demographic literally and figuratively was dying, and that is changing and it's trained changing dramatically. Just this week, we have gotten inbound inquiries from Belarus, <laughs> Sri Lanka, of course from Hong Kong. The resurgence is global, it's young, it's multi-ethnic, it's multi-gender, very, very different. This is not your father's gold bull market. Are they educated or are they relying on the expertise of Sprout to direct them into the right stocks? Or do you operate more or less like a fund, just asking them to trust you? Well, Ellis, inadvertently, that was a softball question. They're educated, so they're relying on Sprout. They recognize that we have for 30 years focused on one thing, which is natural resources and precious metals. The millennials, if nothing else, with a diversity of sources of information, have learned how to source information well. We have not reached the millennials through our outreach. They have found us as a consequence of their presence online, which is really, really interesting. What do you think the takeaway from this particular conference will be? My hope is that people that are new to the sector come away from this conference with three basic understandings. The first is that bear markets are the cause of bull markets. It's tough to understand that. The second thing is that early in a bull market, just getting market beta, just participating in the market is what's important. So you buy the best companies you can. You don't look for leverage necessarily at the beginning of a bull market. The third thing that I want your listeners and all the attendees to come away with is that this is at once a resources business, but more importantly, a people business. Management teams that have been successful in the past will be successful in the future. Unproven management teams generate much more risk. You don't need to take risk to get rewards early in a bull market. Buy the best companies, buy the best people. This move is going to be ubiquitous. Don't take the risk with the rest. Buy the best. Rick, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you, sir. My pleasure, and thank you for your ongoing support of the Sprott Conference. I've been speaking with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Learn more about Sprott Global by visiting their website, SprottGlobal.com. <laughs>
Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, President and CEO of Omben Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Omben Resource is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Mr. Pettit joins me at the recent Sprott Resource Symposium in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Jim, welcome to the program. Nice to have you here. Thanks a lot, Ellis. Great to be here. Tell us what's happening with Aubin Resources. Well, we've started drilling about two weeks ago now on the Forest Kerr. We finished drilling in the Yukon and moved directly to the Golden Triangle property, the Forest Kerr property. That's our flagship property, so I'm glad to get back at it again. When are we going to see some results from the Yukon? Anytime now. The powers that be, the geos and everything, they, they got everything batched and sent in at once, basically, so we're waiting for everything back now. Are you allowed to tell us what they saw when they looked at the core samples? No. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> You know, they were happy with what they saw. You know what? At everyone, the, on the diamond drill holes, the four of them, they hit sulfides in each one of them. So that's a good sign. Now, you know, to what degree? What percentage sulfides? They did hit at the horizon they were expecting, too. So that bodes well. The rab holes, well, that blast, right? It's it's air blast. And it's if you have five meters of it, you can have all the heavy concentrate down on the bottom of the core. So it's a different read. It'll be a different, I don't know what to expect from that. I'm hopeful. Speaking of hopeful, we had a good run last summer in British Columbia's Golden Triangle. Are you hopeful again that we might see the same sort of results, if not better? I can only hope. Uh, what we started with last year were exceptional. We had four intervals in one hole, and they were all high grade. And the highest grade was you know, over 30 grams and sizable width. I think it was six meters of 62 grams. Pretty spectacular. That's one interval out of four. If we can do that again, that'd be fabulous. And we hit a lot of gold last year. Not to that extent, but there was lots of it. And it's all shallow. Everything we hit last year was less than 125 meters deep. This year, we've got the benefit of the geophysical program we did a few months ago. It's giving us some indications of deeper seated structures that we can aim for in coordination with the geochem that we've already got on the property and have known for several years now. I think we put the two together and I think we can have some pretty good success this year. At what point do you take a look at future, whether a takeout option or a joint venture with another company? How much do you have to prove up before you really take a hard look at that? You need consistent interest, right? From, yes, this is our third season drilling, but we haven't even been in there for one full year. If you look at it that way, there's very few companies that are at that level of drilling consistency that can draw that major to the table. I mean, there's a few, like Great Bear is a good example. They took an old story and turned it into a new story and in their first year of re-drilling this old structure that people looked at for years, they just put a different face on it and holy cow, that's the best story in the business right now. And what we're doing, we're starting to get there. We're starting to understand what we're looking at. And I think with another season behind us, maybe another five to 10,000 meters of drilling, it's going to look better. There are some bigger companies now looking in the Golden Triangle seriously. So you just saw GT Gold. They got a big investment from Newmont. Does your drilling strategy change year to year based on what you're finding each season? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, each season you get a little smarter. We now see with the geophysics, we can definitely see that a lot of the high grades that we hit, the high grade areas, they correlate with sort of a little structural fold. That's perfect. That's what you want to see because it allows you to predict. I know I asked you this last time we spoke a couple of weeks ago, but when will we start to see some results from the assay labs with regard to, let's say, the Yukon? Well, the Yukon, I think, could be by this weekend. It could be the following weekend. I mean, we started the beginning of June. We would have got those assays in third week of June, most of them, and then there was some stragglers after that. So I'm guessing a month, right? So maybe it's another week, might be another two weeks. I was hoping that the beginning of the season like that, you get a better turnaround time. But Whitehorse, where the lab is that we sent that stuff to, was they're getting a lot more drilling in the Yukon this year. How do you feel about this summer market-wise compared to other years? Are you feeling something different? I've asked this question of, of almost everybody. Are we turning around? Well, the gold market, for sure. Yeah, that's why I'm always into gold. The last company I ran was Bayfield, which we sold to New Gold. That was in a booming market, and we caught the tail end of it and managed to sell the company before it went to zero like a lot of them. At this time, you can definitely feel we're coming out of the slumps. Gold's getting a lot of attention now for all kinds of reasons, like the Fed, the president. The euro is dropping right now against the U.S. dollar, and a lot of that's not all going into the U.S. dollar. It's going into gold. I think we're going to see much higher gold. There's a couple of thresholds ahead of us that they're going to get taken out. It's going to be a whole new day in gold. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I wish you all the best with the results this summer. Thanks a lot, Ellis. I've been speaking with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.